welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, good morning, everyone. So I got to tell you something about the, the worship team this morning. Uh, they were scrambling. We had uh, a couple people on uh, non-COVID IL. We had some load management for some other people. And so the team had to shuffle the last minute. And, uh, and Lisa wasn't even supposed to be on the keys. And she learned it all this morning. So could we give the worship team a hand for their... Their flexibility and going with the flow. So, uh, and if you've learned anything in the last two years, uh, those who are flexible are not easily bent out of shape. So, all right. Um, welcome. Welcome to those online. Welcome to, uh, to New Life this morning. We're going to continue on in our, our study in the book of Genesis. And, and the first four words of the whole Bible in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God. Some of the, the most uh, famous words really uh, ever written, it's, uh, it's one of the most famous phrases even in all the Bible. And, and so far in our study, what we've been doing is we've been examining the when and the how of creation, right? Was it by, by mere randomness that everything came out of nothing? Was it mere random mutations over time that brought us to this place, as the world and science would say? Or are we here because there's a purposeful designer? That we are on purpose. There is a design and a plan to bring us to this point. And, and if there's a purposeful designer, that designer has to be, by definition, greater than creation itself. And so we are spending some time on the when and the how because they're both important and interesting. And, and the hope in doing so was that we would discover that the, the creation account, as recorded for us in Genesis, has, has credibility, that it's more than just credible, that it is, in fact, a trustworthy account of the origin of creation, of why we're here. Because if that's the case, if it's trustworthy, then what we can do is we can trust that the God of the Bible is, in fact, God, that he is the God of creation with us being a part of creation. And therefore, there is a, a relationship and therefore even an obligation to, uh, that we would have towards this God. But we said that the when and how is as interesting, as important as it is, it doesn't compare to the who and the why. And that's what we want to start to look at now, especially the who, to try to understand who is this God that we're to seek after? Who is this God that we want to get to know? Because this God that was, was before the beginning, this is a God whose character never changes. A God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the God of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament are identical in their character. So that's what we're going to discover, the character of God this morning. Can you, can you appreciate, though, the impossibility of that task? That in, in a brief sermon, I have to take an infinite God and try to, through my finite mind, convey it to you guys. And then we have some people who are really smart, like Tim. And then we have Peter, <laughs> who's smart, too. But I mean, how are we going to do that? How are we going to communicate all that to understand an indescribable, an infinite, massive God who literally holds the universe, it says, in the span of his hand? So get comfortable. We might be able to hear a little longer. 
I'm just kidding. But, but to be honest with you, the, the thought of this message, knowing that it was coming, has intimidated me each day as we got closer to right now. It's overwhelming. How, how, do I, how do I convey to you how good and how awesome this God is? And the answer is I can't. I simply can't, especially on my own. And so what we're going to do is this fear and this anxiety that I'm feeling inside is going to drive me to trust Jesus. It's going to drive me to depend upon him to do that which only he can do, which is communicate to you and I who he is through this very feeble and inefficient vessel. So let's see what he's going to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to figure this out on our own that you have given to us your Holy Spirit. And your Holy Spirit can speak to us, can lead us, can guide us, and can even make sense of what words come out of my mouth. And I pray, Father, that you would do something really, really special and powerful in each of our hearts. Those here in the room, those who are online right now, that, that we would discover a God so miraculous, so powerful, so scandalous, so incredible, so massive, so glorious, and so loving, and so tender, and so compassionate. In your name we pray, amen. Well, where do we begin? Well, the first point we're going to look at is that, that the God we have, the God we serve, is one who is unique. He's unique, meaning there's, there's no one else like him at all. Psalm 113, verses 4 and 5 says, The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high? Or in Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none or no one like me. So you have to understand, God doesn't have an equal. But he also doesn't even have an opposite. There's no one even close to, there's no one even in the same same stratosphere as God. Nothing can compare, no one can compare, because there's no one even close to him. And I think that's important to recognize because we often fall into the trap that we have God and Satan locked in this titanic, this massive good versus evil battle, and sometimes good wins, sometimes evil wins, and and it's a knock them out, drag them out fight. And that's, that's not the case. Satan has power. Let's not deny that. He has power. But all of the power and all the demons all combined is the equivalent of a match in a hurricane. It doesn't stand a chance compared to God. And so we have to understand God is unique. There's no one like him. He's so, he's so special in that way. And, and maybe to understand what makes him unique, what makes him so powerful, is to look at more of these characteristics of God. And I think the first characteristic I want us to see there is the power of God, that God is powerful. The, the technical term, I guess, is omnipotent or omnipotent, depending on how you want to emphasize the syllables, I guess. And I say that word because it's a technical word, and it makes me sound smarter, and I know what I'm talking about. But it just means that. It means he is all-powerful. He's all the power in the universe. Isaiah 43 and verse 13, even from eternity, I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Or Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Here are some examples 
of his power, a, a portfolio, so to speak, of, of the powerful things that God has done and, and that we've witnessed. Number one, we're all here. The creation exists, that there is a, an entire universe that we've been looking at. There's, there's planets and solar systems, and, and there's, there's stars and moons, and there's, there's life on this planet, and, and thousands and millions, really, of lives and different kinds of species on this planet. And all of that is from God, who created them, those things. We read about how Jesus commanded the sea, commanded the storms in the sea where just a single word could silence it. We've seen how he's raised the dead. He's restored sight to the blind. He's, he's healed people, as we saw last week with Pastor Robin. He's healed people with the word in far-off cities. He's commanded demons. Even entire legions of demons were terrified of him. In Joshua chapter 10, we read about how, how God stopped the sun in mid-motion for a day in order for the battle to continue that Israel would prevail. And then one of my favorite stories is the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel. Remember that story where, where there's a drought going on for about three years because Israel is so rebellious and, and the King Ahab and Jezebel, they're, they're choosing to follow um, the, the Baal and God of the God Baal and they're, they're following after them. And then finally Elijah says, basically, we need to have a God off. Right? You can have your God, Baal, versus my God of Israel, and let's see who wins. And so he, he got the prophets of, of Baal together, 450 of them, on Mount Carmel. And he says, you're going to build an altar, and I'm going to build an altar. We'll each put an oxen on there, and then we're going to pray for our God, your God, to bring down fire. Whoever does it wins. And so sure enough, they think, excellent, we got 450 of us praying. It, easy task. So they make the altar, and for an entire day, starts in early morning all the way to late evening, these guys pray, and they dance, and they jump over the altar, and they're cutting themselves. They're doing everything in their power to call down fire, and there's nothing but crickets. And then Elijah, who actually was trash-talking them, that's one of my favorite parts of the story. <laughs> what happened to your God? Is he, is he gone somewhere? Is he, is he busy? Maybe he's in the bathroom. Keep going, guys. Keep going. Like, I love that, trash talking, in the Bible, right? So it's a biblical concept. And so, <laughs> so after then trashing him, he says, OK, now we're going to build our altar. And he rebuilt an altar that Israel already had there. And he says, guys, this is not enough of a task. I want you to soak it. And that's the, soak it again, soak it again. He soaked it three times, so much so that there was a little moat around the, the altar filled with water. And he simply prayed, God, bring down your fire. And this fireball came down. And it says it licked up the, the moat of water. Everything consumed the entire sacrifice. I mean, fireballs from heaven. How cool is that? That's the kind of power this God has. But you see, as, as wonderful as it is to know he's powerful, a bigger question is, is that power available to me? Because it's, it's one thing that he's powerful, but if that power is not for me, if it's not available to me, if it's not on my side, then I don't know if that power is good, at least not for me. And so that's a question we have to understand, to which some reply, well, if that power is from me, then, then why is my life so hard? I mean, with a few snaps of his fingers, surely, surely he could easily fix problems. I mean, he could change the hearts of other people. He can, he can, especially those who are causing me so much trouble, Peter. 
I don't know why I'm picking on you this morning. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll pick on someone else going on in, all right? Everyone be careful. You've been on notice now. So he could easily cause, you know, change people's hearts, especially those causing me trouble. He could change my circumstances, and it would be nothing for him to do that. He could heal me from what I'm struggling with, what I'm sick with. I mean, if he is for me, has all that power, how come he doesn't show up more in my life? And quite frankly, that's, that's one of the toughest questions you and I will wrestle with and will continue to wrestle with until the day we leave this planet. Now, some, what they try to do is they try to ignore the question altogether. Live in a fantasy world and just, just don't ask the question. Everything's fine. Everything's OK. And just sort of put on blinders. And then there's others who, who get shipwrecked on that question, who struggle in such despair and withholding that trust in God because they, they don't have an answer for that. And the reason is because there's, there's no easy answer. Unless we start to understand, I think, some of the other attributes of God. So, so not only is God all-powerful, but God is also all-knowing. He has an infinite wisdom. He has an infinite amount of understanding. Listen to how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 147.5. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. And then Jeremiah 23, 24, can a man hide himself in the hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? He's everywhere. He knows everything. Every little detail, every little nuance, nothing is hidden from him. He understands it all. He understands the beginning from the end and everything in between. You see, part of our struggle to understand God is just that. We, we don't understand God. And because how can we? How can we understand a God who understands everything when you and I can't? We have such a narrow perspective on things. We have such a narrow understanding on things. It's like we're, we're showing up into this, this epic movie, and all we see is about 10 minutes of it, three quarters of the way in, and suddenly you're, you're meant to understand everything. And we don't. We don't have full understanding. Only, only an infinite God can fully understand that. And while not everything is happening according to his will and his desire, make that very known to you, not everything that happens is happening according to his will and his desire. Because his will is not for sin. His desire is all that would be saved. But yet we don't see that. We still see people sinning, and we still see people rejecting God. So his desire and his will is one thing. But a lot is happening. And, and he doesn't stop it because he respects the freedom that mankind needs. He, he loves you and I enough to offer us a choice, even if those choices hurt us, and even sometimes other people. Because to violate us and remove that choice, to remove that freedom, would be to violate love and would be a violation of us. And so he respects our choices. And so what ends up happening is much of what we blame God for really is misdirected. And we do that often. This person's hurting me over here, and we blame these people because they're not, they're not doing enough over there. You see, God, God could have stopped it, but he chose not to. And part of that is because 
knowing how all things work out, knowing the, the good from the bad, knowing, knowing even those sinful, harmful choices, he knows how he can repurpose them. He knows how he can redeem them. He knows how he can take every sinful choice of myself and even another and turn it into something good. So what that means is that everything you and I are enduring, the pain, the struggle, the disappointments, the frustrations, the trials, whether we're going to be in more lockdowns or not, the frustrations around that, the failures of our own self and even other people, all of it has a purpose. All of it, it will be purposed by God. See, God has sat down, and he's already figured everything out. He's figured out how to redeem this situation in order that it will turn out for our good. That's what Romans 8, 28, 29 says. Look what it says. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Notice it doesn't say God causes all good things to work together. All things. The good, the bad, the ugly, the stuff that makes you ugly cry, all of it, God says, I will redeem. I will turn it around, and it will be good. He works it together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that we, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, that's the plan. That's where he's leading us to. See, too often we've, we've mistaken this idea that God has come to give us abundant life and that will make me happy. That will give me contented circumstances. That will give me a joyful, easy life. And that's not his agenda. Don't, don't mishear me. It's not that God doesn't want you to experience joy and contentment and even happiness. But he's got a bigger picture in mind, knowing what ultimately leads to those things is not your circumstances, but a deeper, more intimate relationship with Jesus in such a way that Jesus is living through you, that your character conforms more and more into the character of Christ, just like Peter. See how I redeemed that one? <laughs> You're welcome. There's a great illustration of how God is good at this, how, God, how great God is in this, and how feeble man is in this. And that's, that's the cross. Remember the story where, where Jesus is telling everyone, telling his disciples, I'm going to go to the cross. And what did Peter say? No, you're not. In fact, I love how it says in Scripture, he pulled Jesus aside one day and rebuked him. Listen, Jesus, you've been... You've been talking a lot about going to the cross, but I, I'm here to correct you. You need to stop doing that. I mean, that's, that's impressive. But why did Peter do that? Because Peter, Peter had the view of the story that was three quarters away into the movie for 10 minutes. And, and he said the arrival of Jesus was going to make nice circumstances, that the arrival of Jesus was going to get rid of the Roman uh, guard and the Roman army. He was going to change the religious leaders. And Jesus now is going to rule, just like King David ruled, in entering Israel into a time of prosperity. That's how he saw things. But what did God see? I sent my son for one purpose, for one purpose only, to die on a cross. To die on a cross in order to be the ransom for all of creation 
so that I could be in relationship with him again, that I could remove the separation of sin and death, that I could redeem them from the evil one in order that they may have life. You see, God understood that. Jesus understood that because their perception, their understanding, their perspective is perfect and unique. Ours is not. And so what we need to do is we need to trust the one who sees it all. We need to trust the one who knows how it ends. And not just in the final chapter, but each step of the way. Will you trust that one? And that's hard for us. Because sometimes we feel like God's abandoned us. That we're all alone. And he's forgotten about us. Because, you know, it's, it's a big world out there. And, I mean, it's hard to manage all the stars and my life. So maybe he's kind of dropped the ball on me. But one of the characteristics we need to understand is, is God is faithful. He's faithful as our redeemer. In Deuteronomy 4.31, it says, For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. He won't forget us but for a moment. And Psalm 91, verse 4, says he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Do you remember, remember Pastor Josh speaking on this psalm back, I think it was the summer? This idea of these pinions are like these, these, uh, these feathers are almost like steel quality. They're so strong and so powerful. For you Marvel fans, think about the, um, the falcon. For you non-Marvel fans, go watch the Falcon, <laughs> all right? So he's got these metal wings, and, and they're, they're protective. You know, you shoot at it. The wings come across, and bang, it, blow, it, it bounces off of it. That's the kind of God we have, that his faithfulness is the shield. His promise to always be there, to never leave us nor forsake us, that is what protects us. And maybe even more so in the times of struggles. C.S. Lewis has that famous series, The Chronicles of Narnia. How many people have read that? All right, the rest of you, you need to get saved and read that series. <laughs> it's an incredible series, and it's an incredible picture of our, of our relationship with Jesus. And uh, the most famous is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is, which is really good, but not my favorite. My favorite is The Horse and His Boy. It's probably the least well-known of the series, but it's my favorite one because of the journey that this boy goes on. This little boy named Shasta, he's abandoned as a little baby, ends up living in this uh, little town where he grows up almost like a Cinderella character, where he's this, he ends up being the slave of the person who adopted him. And he's mistreated and mistreated. And then finally, he escapes. And now he's on this incredible journey, trying to run away and not be captured. Because if he's captured, he's killed. So he's trying to get to Narnia. And he meets some other people along the way. And he faces all kinds of treacherous situations. He's scared. He's in this, this kind of the valley of death sort of idea in this graveyard where only a cat's there to look after him. He's being chased by lions. It's an incredible journey. And he's, he's just thinking, man, like, what else can happen to me? And then finally, he meets Aslan, the lion, who's Jesus. And Aslan begins to speak to him. And, and I want to quote to you what it says. You know, I was the lion. Remember, he says, you're being chased by all these lions. I was the lion. 
I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you would reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it would came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. See, all these things were happening, and Shasta didn't understand it because he had such a narrow perspective on it. And yet, Aslan, this lion, was faithful, knowing the end, each step of the way, protecting him. And at times, it was terrifying to Shasta. At times, it was harsh and it was difficult for Shasta. But each thing was necessary in order to accomplish what Shasta needed to accomplish. And so we see a faithful God. But we see a tenderness of God, too. A God who is mercy and patient. See, sometimes we, we struggle with the belief that maybe, maybe God's just disappointed with me. Because, you know, maybe he's frustrated with me because I keep screwing up. I keep screwing up as a husband. I'm failing as a wife. I'm, I'm really failing as a parent. I'm a lousy Christian. In fact, I might actually be driving people away from faith in Jesus more than bringing them to faith in him because I'm such a bad Christian. I keep struggling with the same sins and addictions. I can't stop drinking. I can't stop these lustful thoughts. I can't control my eating, my temper, even my harsh words, especially to those who I love the most. In fact, if I'm honest, I don't even want to trust God sometimes. And maybe, maybe he's now finally reached the limit and he's given up. He says, enough. He's done with me. Because you know what? I'm sick of me. So how would he not be sick of me? So we struggle with Is God truly merciful and compassionate? Well, in Exodus 34 and 6, it says, The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Or or Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. I love this passage. It says, just as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Isn't that cool? You're just a bag of dust. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Peter's glad, I know that. But aren't the rest of you glad that you came this morning? What's he saying here? He says, I get that you're frail. I understand. I understand that you're weak. I understand that you make mistakes. That you give in to temptation. Sometimes very easily. And sometimes very often. He understands that you and I were full of shame and guilt and fear and insecurity and anxiety. That we're a giant ball of mess of emotions. That if those emotions ever came out, even Mother Teresa would say, mm, no, thank you. He says, I get it. I understand it. And you know what he says in response to all of it? He says, I want it all. 
I want the sin, I want the shame, I want the guilt, I want the anxiety, I want the mess of emotions, I want everything. Because I wanted you. It, it's, it's why I came to die on this planet, was for you. And I know all about the mess, and it doesn't scare me off one bit. In fact, I, I welcome it. Because the reality is nothing shocks him. Nothing surprises him. Nothing overwhelms him. He's already made the choice that says, I love you. And that doesn't make sense. It makes zero sense in this world. Because this world is, is, is a love that, that is reactionary. There's, there's nothing in this world that even compares to that kind of love of God. I mean, there's, there's some glimpses of it, brief as they may be. Like when a, when a mother is holding a newborn child that's sleeping in their arms. It's, it's brief, right? Because three minutes ago, they were screaming at midnight, and they couldn't sleep, but, and you're pulling your hair out. But then that finally moment, they sleep, and it's like, oh, I love you. I almost killed you, but I love you now, right? I mean, for a brief moment, we see that kind of love, right? Or, or we're a newly married couple, right? They, they wake up, and they look at each other. See, the kind of mercy and compassion that God offers you and I is, is not found in this world. It's not coming out of creation. It's coming out of the creator. It's greater than the creation. It's unmatched by anything in this creation, which again makes God so unique. Which, which leads us to the last characteristic that we're going to look at this morning, and that's, that's that the love of God the grace of God is ultimately personified in God. That he is absolutely 100% loving and gracious. Up to this point, I, I've intentionally been using Old Testament passages. That was on purpose. And, and partly because what I wanted us to see is that even though we're, we're under the new covenant and we're proclaiming the new covenant, we don't throw away the Old Testament. That all scripture, new and old, has a lot to offer us. That is it's powerful for training us in righteousness and understanding who God is. And, and we don't dismiss it and throw it away. We just need to use it appropriately. We need to understand that in the Old Testament, sometimes it's talking about the old covenant that we're not a part of. But there's countless passages that talk about the character of God. And the character of God has not changed. Sometimes we read the God in the Old Testament, we see the Jesus in the New Testament, we think, well, there's a bit of a difference there. No, they're the exact same God, the exact same character. Jesus came to show us who God is really like. And so what we can do is we can read those Old Testament passages about who God is, and we can learn from his, about his faithfulness and his power and his mercy and his compassion. But nothing shows it better than Jesus himself. And so Jesus came not just to, to tell us about God, but to show us God. Remember Philip in John 14, where Jesus declares that, that I am the way and the truth and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through me? At which point Philip raised his hand, and I always thought that was the Peter moment, because Peter is always the one who says something without thinking. But I'm guessing Peter was in the bathroom. So it was Philip's turn, you know, next man up mentality, right? So Philip says, oh, Jesus, if, if we could see the Father, oh, that would be special. 
They've been with each other for three and a half years. This is the night before he goes to the cross. And he says, oh, Philip, don't you get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That all this time, it's been the Father in and through me. You've been getting to know the Father by getting to know me. And so when Jesus, when he arrives here on planet Earth, it's not just to announce who God is. It's not just to proclaim and talk about who God is. He demonstrated God to you and I. Let's, let's read this passage in, in John chapter 1, verse, beginning verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what we're going to celebrate in, in six days, right? The word became flesh. That God became man. Fully God and yet fully man. And he arrived here as a little baby. I mean, think about it. He could have, he could have just, you know, come out of the dust, been a full-grown man, go to the cross, accomplish everything. But he chose not to. He chose to arrive as a baby which meant he got to experience everything that you and I experience in this sin-cursed world. Being weak, being frail, being helpless, being cold, and then being rejected, being bullied for being different, being abandoned, being beaten. He experienced everything that you and I have experienced in this world. And he did it in order to express to us the glory of the Father, the glory of God. Next verse, John testified about him and cried out, saying, this is, he, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. The John here is referring to John the baptizer. He wasn't a Baptist, by the way, just so we're clear. He probably was allowed to dance, but he would baptize people, right? So John the baptizer, he's proclaiming to us that he's the one I've been telling you about. He's the Lamb of God. He's our Redeemer. He's our Savior. He's the one who's come to fix everything. For of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. It was almost like he said, I could tell you about grace, but it would be far more powerful to show you grace. And so grace and love is personified in the person of Jesus. As, as the familiar saying goes, if you want to know what grace and love is, look it up in the dictionary, and you'll see a picture of Jesus. That's the best way to define it. It's not just something he had, grace and love. It's who he was and who he expressed all the time. And so John then, he writes in his, his, his next letter in 1 John 4, beginning verse 16, he says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. It's not that God has love. It's not that God will love or even God loves. But God is love. It's the definition of who he is. The word here, there's, there's a few different Greek words for love. The word here is agape, which the King James at times translated agape as charity, which I think is brilliant. 
Because what's charity? Charity is giving of yourself to help those who are in need with nothing coming back in return. That's what agape is. And do you realize agape is, is divine love? It's not found anywhere else. That this God says, I will love you, Richard, even though I get nothing back in return. I will offer myself to you, Sheldon, and I don't demand anything back. I just want to love you. Doesn't make sense. I mean, I know, I know Richard and Sheldon are pretty cool guys, but it still doesn't make sense. And yet that's the kind of God that we have. And so we've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Look at that. The day of judgment. How many people are looking forward to it? You ought to. See, we're terrified of it often. We're afraid of it because we think that day of judgment is all going to be about your sins and your failures being thrown in your face. You blew it here. You failed here. You picked on Peter too many times. All these sins and failures are going to be thrown at you. But that's not what it's going to be about. Instead, it's a day of celebration. It's a day of rejoicing where God's going to celebrate and rejoice and praise you for those times you trusted in him. And so you and I have confidence in the day of judgment. We get to look forward to the day of judgment. Why? Look what it said there. Because as he is, so also will you be one day. Is that what it says? No. As he is, so also are you in this world. Think about that. How righteous are you? According to that verse, as righteous as he is. How holy are you? According to that verse, just as holy as he is. How accepted are you? How approved are you? How loved are you? How much do you belong to the Father? Apparently, as much as Jesus is. Did you earn it? Do you deserve it? Do you have to work for it, to maintain it, to keep it? Of course not. It is the free gift of God to you. And he says, will you just enjoy it? Will you receive it? And take part and take advantage of the confidence that it brings. That because of the cross, all of it is settled. That God has already proclaimed and announced his judgment on you guys. You're good. It goes on, he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. We're worried about what, what God's going to do. And he says, but the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now, that's not meant to be a slam against you. It just means that God, the answer to the anxiety and the fears that we have, that God knows because you're just a bag of dust, right? He says, the answer is, let me love you. Let me show you my love more. Come and taste of my love. And we love because he first loved us. Again, we, we struggle with that idea because we struggle with how much God really really loves you and I. I. 
I have the privilege of, of meeting with a lot of people and all over the world even, but across our city and different parts of different churches and so forth. And I've seen a consistent theme in how people, when it comes to the love of God, and they say something like, I know God loves me, but I'm struggling over here. And, and I'm, I was trying to, to think about this and process this out. And, and being an engineer, there's got to be a formula for this. So I came up with one. And it's almost like you need 100 units of love in order to be OK with yourself. If you get that 100 units of love, then you have permission and freedom to love yourself. And so how do we break up the 80 units of love? Well, first you have God's love. And God's really important, guys. Really, really important. So that's 80 units right there. I mean, you're, you're almost there just with God's love alone. But now there's the extra 20 units. And that's going to be from other people. And so now you just got to work on, oh, it's only 20 units, right? You got 80 from God and it's free. Now you just need the other 20 units and everything will be okay. And so when we say, I know God loves me, I know I have the 80 units, my problem is Norm doesn't love me. And I haven't even picked on Norm today, and he still doesn't love me. And, and so that's my issue. How do I get Norm to love me so I can get those extra 20 units? Oh, uh, <laughs> thank you. Now I'm 15 units there. I'm almost there. <laughs> I'm getting closer. But Tim doesn't love me now. And because the problem is Tim's got different expectations than Norm has for me. I mean, Norm, he's got a list that he's keeping about me if I've been naughty or nice. And Tim's got a whole other rule of list I got to follow. So I'm, I'm struggling here. And so I, I, I just got to figure out, how do I get Tim now to love me? And the problem is, it's, it's never enough. And again, I need 100 full units to love and accept myself. And so the problem that many people have is that, how do I get others to love me? And you'll never arrive at the solution. But the flaw in the formula is that you've limited God to 80 units. Think about the infinite love of God. All that love. He's all you and I need. But what we've done is our finite mind has reduced and limited the infinite love of God to being something that it's not enough. I guarantee you, every one of you here has no idea how much you're loved. The simple declaration that I know God loves me proves to me you have no idea. Because again, there's an infinite love trying to squeeze into your finite brain. You, you would have a better chance at gathering up the Pacific Ocean in a bucket than trying to fully understand the love of God. But maybe that's our problem. Maybe, maybe we're not supposed to try to understand the love of God as much as enjoy it and experience it. Because you think about the ocean or, or any body of water, a lake or a river, is the point of it to gather it all up? Or is the point of it to go and play in it? To go splash around? To go make some waves? And maybe that's what we need to do with the love of God. Is we just need to go and experience it. And enjoy it. To which some say, well, I did that last week. And it was great last week, but today, I don't feel like he loves me anymore. Or I don't feel it's quite enough. Well, that's not surprising. Because the love of God is not meant to be a one-time experience. It's not meant to be something you experience at, you know, at age 8 or age 16 or age 34 or whatever. 
It's meant to be something you enjoy consistently. Think about it this way. Imagine you go out and you have an incredible dinner. I mean, like, perfect cooked steak dinner. And, and gourmet mashed potatoes and, and maybe some vegetables and, and, and some wonderful dessert. I mean, incredible meal. I mean, you get to the end of that meal and you push back from the table, undo the top button and just sort of, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> right? That kind of a meal. Guess what's going to happen in two or three days if you don't eat anything else? You're going to be hungry again. And that's normal. That's good. And that's the way that God designed it. That food was not meant to be a one-time meal to sustain you for the rest of your life. It was food to sustain you in the moment. And God set that up with water. He set it up with breathing. He's training us to realize that there are things you just need that are only good in the moment. It was the whole point of the man in the wilderness. Remember the story for the children of Israel? They're in the wilderness, and God says, I'll provide for you. I'm going to send manna to you. As much man as you need for the day, but only for the day. And if you hoard everything up and you try to, because that's what some people do, right? They're sales guys. They think, you know what? If I take a lot, then I'll have left more left over next week to sell to other people. And, and so they're thinking that way. But what would happen is everything they stored up at the end of the day go bad. Why? So they have to go back the next day and collect some more. And what was God doing? He's training them. What you had yesterday was great and wonderful, but it's not for today. Today, you got to come back to me. Because my mercies, my compassion, my faithfulness, my love, my grace is new every morning. And so we got to come back to experiencing and, and resting in this love of God. So let's summarize then. Look, what have we looked at so far? We've seen that God is unique, which again only means something if it means something to me personally. And I think what's so cool about that is as a unique God who is my God, I don't get some second-rate God. I don't, I don't even get some angel that I report to, right? I go to the chain of command. I go to this angel. He goes to the archangel who eventually goes to God. And, you know, there's a managerial structure. No, 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 no. I go right to the king because I'm his son. I'm his child. I have access to God. We see that God is powerful in all of his sovereign power, his, his rule and his reign, his dominion, he's using that power always to my benefit. Not necessarily giving me the circumstances I want, because quite frankly, if I were to arrange the circumstances of life, I'd be like Peter, and I'd miss out in the bigger picture of things. And so he's always working to my advantage, even when, and maybe especially when the world is so dark. He's working in me to grow and discover a power of God that now lives in me. He's faithful to me. He's faithful to you. He's never going to abandon you, never going to turn his, his back on you. And he's filled with mercy and compassion. He understands you and me. He understands our struggles. He understands our shame. He sees every side of it. And he says, I get it. I get you. And I still love you and I still want you. And we saw that he's love and he's gracious. And so he never runs out of love. He never stops offering grace. He's always working to, to what is best for me, even when it meant a personal sacrifice to him. We had to leave heaven, come to earth as a baby, suffer through life for 33 plus years, to then ultimately be brutally murdered on a cross. 
He did all that so I could go free. So you could go free. So how do we apply this? What, what's the response to this kind of love and grace and mercy and compassion? Well, I got a list. I want you guys to write some things down. You ready? You got to read your Bible more. Start memorizing it, in fact. And, and do your daily devotions and make sure you're tithing 10%. Make sure you're feeding the poor and less fortunate. Volunteer more. That goes for all of you. And get serious about your sin. Just stop it. Like, for goodness sakes, get over it, right? And, and you know what? Maybe, maybe you just need to work harder. Could you imagine? That's the response to this love? And yet it is for many churches. Many churches who think that religion is the answer, and they just, for all that God's done for you, you owe him now all these things. You miss the point. You miss the point entirely if that's the response. If that's the response to love, then you don't understand love. See, God loved you and I not for what we would do for him. It wasn't a transactional exchange. I offer you love, you offer me back due service. Because I loved you just so I could love you. And I loved you so I could love you now, and I could love you tomorrow, and I could love you next week and next year. And the cool thing is after you die, I get to love you for eternity. For all of eternity is going to be about God displaying the kindness and the mercy and the grace upon you. That's Ephesians 2, 7, where God loved you so he could love you and love you and love you and love you. And all he wants... All he hopes for is that we receive it. Think about, you know, in, in six days' time, right? Especially you parents, you're going to go and buy a present for your kids. What do you want them to do with it? To receive it, to enjoy it, to play with those toys. That's all God wants from you and I. Just receive my love. Trust that I love you. Trust that it's not just 80 units, that my love for you is overflowing, which gives you permission to love yourself, just as you are. But God, I've, I've got problems. I've got struggles. I've got, I got so many failures to my name, and I've got so much shame that I struggle with. God says, I know. I know. But just let me love you right where you're at. Because even though you struggle with all those things, you're okay with me. Just receive my love. Trust my love. Enjoy it. Look for it. Look for how I'm going to love you. You'd be amazed at the number of ways that God wants to love you, surprise you with his love, surprise you with these experiences if we had eyes to see it. And then the proper response to that, I think, is just the natural response. Like, quite frankly, if, if I have to tell you what to do in response to love, then I've done a poor job expressing what this love is. Because it's natural. No one has to tell me how to respond to joy and her love for me. It's the most natural thing to do is to love her back. And I, I just let it flow. And we love because we're loved first. We get to experience and see that love up close, especially when we're loving other people. 
See, I didn't leave engineering to come into ministry to earn something from God. You want to know what's motivating me in ministry? To, to truly give my life over to ministry in all these different forms and facets. What motivated me to be in ministry is God loves me. He loves this weak, frail, shame-filled, constantly screwing up bag of dust. He loves me. I'm the one whom Jesus loves. And I want you all to know that. And so why I left engineering to go into ministries, I wanted to proclaim to the entire world that God loves you just as you are. Not for who you think you should be. Not because, you know, not after you fix all these things and clean up your act. He just loves you right where you are right now. And that little bit of love that I tasted was enough. And so I encourage you, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see his love, his power, his goodness, his grace, his faithfulness, his compassion. Taste and see. And you will be blown away by the, this God of the universe. Let's pray. Father, I, I didn't do you justice, but I never could. I never could show these people how much you love them. No words, no, no acts on my part can ultimately show it. Not to the same degree that Jesus did on the cross. You demonstrated, you've proven your love, you've proven your goodness, you've proven your faithfulness, you've proven your power for us over and over again. And we're slow to learn. We're slow to trust because we're so full of fear and anxiety and doubt. But you get us. Thank you for that, Father. So will you meet every one of us where we're at? Meet us in our doubt. Meet us in our fear. Meet us in our shame. Meet us in our guilt. Meet us where we are today right now that we can taste and see your goodness, taste and see your power, and that we would trust you just for right now, just in this moment, and rest in your love. Thank you, Jesus, that that's something you have to do and that you're going to. In your name You've we been pray. listening to the New Amen. Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.